When did you get over here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The five loaves and two fish. It just happened the day before. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked them, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Here it is. Drum roll. That's pretty weak. Nice drum roll. Okay, a little bit better. Right? It is this. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign, can you believe this? What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? You just fed ten to 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish, but what else are you going to do? It's an odd thing. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're like, yeah, do something like that. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. A.K.A. I am the bread from heaven, right? Verse 34. Sir, they said, from now on, give us his bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise Him at the last day. Hallelujah. Right. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us, and thank you, Lord, you didn't lose any of us. He's good at that. Verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble. Uh-uh. Because He said, I am the bread that came from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came from heaven? Kind of makes sense, right? This is the guy we know, he's a carpenter's son. What? Stop grumbling among yourselves, you said. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him. And I'll raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Yeah, he's getting crazy. Then the Jews began to argue sharply. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Right? He's saying he has the bread from heaven. Now he's saying eat my flesh. It's getting weird. Verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. He's just laying it on. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So then his disciples are like, I don't know about this. Verse 60. On hearing it, his own disciples said, this is a hard teaching. A.K.A., what are you talking about? Who can accept this? Cannibalism? This is crazy. Verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to... That should be in like a gym somewhere on the wall, huh? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Can you think of a better poster in a gym? Not that I'm anti-gyms, but hey, there's got to be a place, right? The words I have spoken to are Spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe... For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed. And Jesus turns to his guys, turns to the twelve. You don't want to leave too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Amen, Judas, who's no later betraying. So it's a lot of reading, but I feel it's important to get the whole dialogue. Because you could just really pick parts of the dialogue out and maybe even make it say some things that maybe it shouldn't. In context, it's really important. And um, as you can see, I'm not on. Hello, 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 hello. Gonna freak people out online. Hello, hello, hello. There you go. So the issue really was is that he had a huge crowd of people, said some radical things, and then they split. And then why did Jesus do it? How come? What's going on? Um, that's the issue. And the message for us that I couldn't get off my heart this week um, had to do with motivation, as you can tell what I put in the bulletin, and so articulately. Uh, well stated in the first question. All right? So we're going to take a look at some of this stuff. And so really two things. One is the timing of this question and, 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 and why he's bringing this up. And then secondly, the purpose. The timing of why he's bringing up this weird stuff and what's he saying? What is this meaning? And then the purpose behind what he's saying. So those are two things we'll talk about. And uh, I like the title of the message, Unfollow, um, because... I think we can all relate to that, um, right? Really quickly, um, how many people have ever unfollowed anybody on Twitter or Facebook or some kind of social media, right? We are familiar uh, with that. And usually somebody unfollows somebody or doesn't like a status, um, and, right? Relationships are weird this day and age because Twitter, Facebook, you do these posts and things and so-and-so saw it, and I didn't get a like. Um, and 
Uh, and it's even more difficult with like a church, uh, you know, group thing like we have because there's that thing that says views, and if you click on that, you know who saw what you put. And people are like, "Whoa, well, so and so saw it," and I don't understand. I thought it was good, you know. Da, da, da. And then like we get weird about if somehow our likability gets tied up and our esteem gets tied up in whatever kind of posts we get. And sometimes people become or feel maybe a little bit better about themselves or maybe even a little bit more important if they got more favorites on Twitter or more likes on Facebook. And it's like, it's weird. It takes a weird place. Or the other side happens where if we don't get the likes or the favorites, then in our own secret world, we become offended. I don't understand. You know? This is this is lock solid. How, if you're a Christian, how could you not like that post? That was awesome. Or such and such is so funny. How could they not like it? Or, we get weird about stuff. We get really weird about things. And I think it's foolish for us to think that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that somehow that relationship can't in some way possibly be affected through the way that we just have relationships every day. It's really easy to do. And we could easily deceive ourselves and carry over our regular sort of relationship way, you know, with our relationship with Him. Um, and so chances are people have unfollowed people because they don't like what they're seeing in their feed or they don't like what's coming through for whatever reason. Maybe they're annoyed of a lot of picture of the kids. They're just everywhere, you know. Um, Maybe they don't find something as funny as somebody else has found, or maybe they're just, in their mind, offensive, just whatever. People just unfollow, and then, you know, then they're done. Um, or they unfriend, you know, and then they're done. You unfriend somebody, and boy, you just opened up a whole can of worms. You believe someone else unfriended me, you know? You better be prepared to deal with that wrath, right? There's just, there should be many classes on, like, online etiquette and how to approach social media. It's very important. Um... And I'm not going to ask the question of who in here has unfollowed somebody in here. I'm not doing that. Not doing that because that's not the purpose of it and trying to cause division in that way. Um, the relationships in this day and age have very easy, a lot of times, not all, but a lot of times have been reduced to a click. So it's like, maybe I'll like somebody more if they like my stuff or they favorited it or they retweeted it or whatever. Or if stuff comes through, ah, I'm done with them, I don't want that, I'll block them or I'll unfriend them, you know, whatever, and then, phew, then we're done. Um, relationships weren't supposed to be, they're not really intended to be that easily disregarded or easily thrown away. Relationships need a lot of investment and cultivation. And it's really hard to pick all that up from like a social media thing. Really difficult. Almost impossible, pretty much. Um, and even as we, as like a society, um, that relationship idea being needed to be cultivated and invested into, um, you know, a lot of marriages online are reduced to a click. A lot of marriages are just reduced uh, to a feeling, which is unfortunate too. Because then it turns into, well, I've just fallen out of love, you know, and then um, that's about it. We're just not doing this thing anymore. And uh, that carries in real easy. 
and we can, it's really easy to get a lot of people to agree with us and tell us and relate of how right we are and um, how the feelings aren't there and we're not even attracted and we don't want to be around them. And then so, um, irreconcilable differences, you know, sign the dotted line. And it can re- be reduced to that. Um, relationships are so much more. God had so much more in mind. And love, which is a huge one, is so much more than a feeling. As the old DC Talk song goes, anybody remember DC Talk? Probably like three people. Three people. DC Talk, the old DC Talk song, love is a verb. It is a verb. It's an action that we live out. It's a commitment. That's how we get to show that we love one another, is by staying in it the best that we can. So love is like a verb, not just a feeling, because that feeling will be up, down, all around. Our feelings are crazy. They're nuts. We could be so happy one minute, down right the next. Come right back up, oh, it's a good day. And then something happens, oh, my, this is the worst day. And we can find all of we can go up and down all around. And that's not to suggest or say that our feelings and our emotions aren't important, but I think it also is really important to notice is that when we were born, and as the Bible states that we were born into sin, I do not think that our emotions were somehow spared from that. Our emotions were like kept free from the sin that we were born into. Man, our emotions are valid and they matter, but they got to be redeemed like the rest of us. No matter how strong the feeling is. It's really important. Really important to know that. Well, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling it. And that's important. But hopefully they won't dictate what's going to happen next because we understand that there's an enemy there who prowls on our doorstep that's looking to poke, prod, and go after us in any way, shape, or form that he can. If you find success in a particular area, you better bet he's going to keep coming with it. He loves working with that stuff. So, this passage essentially comes down to motives, right? Motives. That's what happens. So let's look at I said two things in the beginning. It's going to come down to two things. The timing and the purpose. Here's the timing. The timing that Jesus comes up with this is right after he does five loaves and two fish. Amazing. Feeds everybody with basically nothing. And we talked about here how really the goal for us, you know, in that, the teaching for us in 2015 is offer the little that we have to him so that we can experience and see just some of what his power is. Humble pie all day, every day, right? So I don't even know what I was saying, but oh yeah, the timing. So five loaves and two fish. So I know the spirit is involved because never can you get that lost and then come back that quick. So the five loaves and two fish. The point of it was for us to offer what little we have 
And let's face it, we got little. We got little. You got little, I got a little. And I don't even care if you get a bigger bank account, a better job, more people under us, we still got a little. It's always little. There's always more that we could have. There's always a better situation that we could be in. There's always more education that we could have. Something always more ideal. The point is not to look for that. The point is just to offer what we do have. Because that's when we see how big he really is and who he really is. It's not theory anymore. It's a reality and it's history in our lives. So the point of five loaves and two fish is just to offer the little that we have so we can experience just some, just some of what he can do. Because it's not a big deal for him. It's light work for Jesus. It's easy. So that happens. Then he's got to get away. He realizes, you know what? I need time alone with my father. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Just getting time alone with our Lord. Being taught, just encountering, being with him, this relationship. Lord, speak to my heart. And we talked about how in those times, Bible reading is very important. Prayer is also really important. But dare I say, like a lot of times, prayer sometimes gets the edge. Because our quiet times could very easily be reduced to reading a passage, gaining more knowledge about the passage, and never encountering God's heart and what he has for us. It could very easily happen. Really easy. I'm not immune to it. You're not immune to it. We can turn into education session session and because we learned more about a particular area and what Jesus did and the people involved, that somehow we learn more about God. Not exactly. Right? So it's really important that we connect with him in prayer and in relationship. So Jesus felt that need after the five loaves and two fish. It's pretty interesting. After that, be on a crazy high. Five loaves and two fish, feeding 10 to 15,000 people. I don't need a quiet time. Look what just happened. Like, let's go do stuff. It's interesting in Jesus' heart. He's like, no, I need time with the Father right now. It's amazing where his heart is at. And so he gets away. And then he sees his guys, you know, in the boat. He's on the hill. He's alone with the Lord. Like 3 a.m. in the morning, he sees them struggling. He goes, well, I got to go help him out. And he goes, just walking out on the water. You know, so we talked about that a couple weeks ago. And he just walks on the water to him. And we talked about you know, storms in life and does God bring them and what happens in there and all that kind of stuff. And so now, when there's this huge crowd, five loaves and two fish, they're looking for him. Hey, where is he? Where is he? Where did he go? Little did they know that during the night, they went over there and they saw the disciples get in the boat and get over there, but they didn't see Jesus get in the boat and get over there. So then they, how'd you get here? Honest enough question. And um, Jesus doesn't get into the details. Well, you know, I walked over here. He doesn't really get into that. He addresses them right away with the big issue. Now, the timing is amazing to me. Most Christians, most churches, most really anything God-related is like people, 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 numbers, numbers, numbers. Get them. How many do we have at the Bible study? How many do we have on the Sunday morning? How many do we have go to the outreach thing? How, it's like almost the first question every time. How many? Who showed up? What? There's some validity to that. And, and it does matter some. But it can very easily 
deceive us into taking a place that somehow God is really pleased with what's going on and he's blessing it with more people. Like, healthy can be small. Is a healthy strawberry any more healthy than a healthy watermelon? No. But that strawberry, man, he's just maxing out where he's maxing out. Like, that's big. I mean, that's just it. But that watermelon is maxing out where he's maxing out. Healthy's healthy. Numbers healthy? Maybe. Sometimes. I don't know. Need some real wisdom of God to figure that one out. But if we just rely on the numbers, there's an issue. There's a real issue. And there's been plenty of cults and other false doctrines out there with millions and thousands of people. And so what do we say? Hey, they got so many followers. God must be pleased. Broad is the road, right, that leads to destruction. Narrow is the one that leads to righteousness. This is what it says. Jesus told us that already. So he gets this big crowd. Most Christians be like, yeah. And now let's develop a system of ministry so we get this crowd, we keep this crowd, and we create more of a crowd. And that's what happens a lot of times. And I guess maybe there's a time and place to do that and cultivate it, but there has to be good wisdom behind it. Jesus saw it as a time like, you know what? Most of these people are on board just because they got to eat well last time. And I know it. So Jesus had the ability to see it for what it was. He had the ability to see it for what it was. Some people might come right at Jesus and be like, man, you are just judging me. That's not the case. I just like hanging out with you. I want to be around you to do something next. But he saw right through that and called them out on it. So the timing is very interesting. He chose at that time, man, it's just time to thin the herd. Because quality believers, disciples, Christ followers, it's much more important than quantity. It's sad and really not. I remember being in a church down south one time, and um, just this particular church. A few thousand people Sunday morning, and man, they had all the bells and whistles, and it was pretty awesome environment. Um, but the worship time was like, I don't even, you know. You can tell a lot by worship service when you look around at the guys and see if they're singing. You can tell a lot about worship environment that way. And you know, I see most of the guys. And they look like really good. The next thing you look for is you look for the kids. See what they're doing in the worship service. And the kids, you know. And some of them will be doing that. But it was just like a, I don't know, they're great songs too, but it was just a big time disconnect. Felt like for me anyways. Um, then we asked some other people, and I guess they were kind of feeling the same way. It was just weird. It was kind of sad, you know. Um, but quality, I'm not saying that's like the same for every church. It was just that one situation. But quality is so much more important. Good fruit, good fruit. So the timing is interesting. And he knew the timing was right to bring this stuff up because he could tell that their motivations were impure. They had ulterior motives. Here's the second part, the purpose. Why does he want to bring this up? Well, to address the problem of ulterior motives. How many in this room know what I'm talking about when I say ulterior motives? We have so many liars, it's ridiculous. 
How do you not raise your hand? Ulterior motives. We're experts. We've grown up in that. We know all about it. How do you spell it? Do you think it's A-L-T or U-L-T? It is U-L-T. I learned that one. Ulterior motives. I always thought it was A-L-T. Ulterior motives. It looks like this. I was reading a thing this week. So it looks like there's this guy, young kid, runs to the library, shows up, talks to the librarian, says, hey, um, I, uh, I want to take that book back out again that you referred to me last time. And um, do you remember what that one was? And the librarian was like really proud, you know, because she tried to make it a thing where she could, you know, refer books, you know, to young men and women and hopefully they'll like it and, you know, come back and run them. And she's like, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember. She's like, you know, is that one about, uh, you know, the, uh, um, the Roman time period, you know, and about the Romans and all kind of stuff. I, I remember. Um, do you, uh, you want to read that book again? And uh, he goes, heck no. He goes, on the bus ride home, I met this girl, and she was really interested in it, and I got her phone number in there, so if I could get that back, you know, that would be great. <laughs> right? So that's ulterior motives, right? You could care less about the book and, you know, the Romans. I want that girl's number, you know. That's, that's what it's about. And, like, this morning, you know, playing with the kids and with uh, Jaren and Judson and got these uh, awesome uh, donuts at the house. I got this from this farmer's market yesterday. Um, apple and cinnamon, like homemade, awesome. And so uh, me and Jaron went yesterday, and he sampled some in the car on the way home, as so did I. And we had a good time doing that. And uh, he's being a pretty good boy this morning. And so uh, I was like, you know, buddy, you finish this, you know, you do that, blah, blah. You can do a little donut thing, you know. But I said, but you also, you have to be nice. you got to be nice to your brother. Like, no pushing. We had a little thing this morning. We pushed him. So he's like, okay, I'd be a good boy. <laughs> Said, okay. You know, so the parents like, man, we're soon going to find out what the motives are, right? What are the motives? So he's, he's like sitting there looking at me. He's like, I'm a good boy. I'm like, yes, you are. Yeah, let's, let's, you know, we played cars. Let's play cars. Okay, we're playing cars. All of a sudden. He's like, Dad, where's my tow truck? I'm like, ah, I, I don't know, but I think it's up. And I saw it on the couch. He's like, it's on top of the couch. Okay. So he grabs his tow truck. He goes, Dad, where's the car? I'm like, ah. oh, it's on the couch too. He goes, grab the car. So he gets the tow truck in the car. He goes, hey, Dada, look at this. And he gives it to brother right in front of me. I'm being nice to brother, Dada. <laughs> kids know, man. You don't need to teach them ulterior motives. You don't need to teach that. Don't need to teach it. It just comes natural. We never, Julie and I, never had to teach them how to pull something back and smack each other. Never, ever had to teach that. It's amazing, right? It's ingrained. It's homegrown. It's how we are. And it's, I think it's probably silly for us to think that somehow we can like bypass when we get older and we're smarter. We can just hide it better. So we need, like, the Lord to, like, reveal that to us, these ulterior motives. Because, man, we are just in this stuff, and it just happens all the time. All the time. It's like whatever you did this morning. Whatever you ate. You know, there's probably some kind of motivation, man. Whatever you ate. Ah, I was available. I just had it or, you know, whatever. Why were we here this morning? 
What's the motive for being here this morning? Like, well, I don't know. I got nothing else to do. Or I want to be there. I'm looking forward to singing. Or I want to, you know, meet my sisters and brothers. Whatever it is. We got motivations, right, for whatever we're doing. And it is of the utmost importance that our motivations, our reason for doing what we're doing is pure and not tainted. That was the entire purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. With the Beatitudes, and Jesus said some radical things like, man, even if you're angry at somebody with somebody, it's the same thing as murder. Even if you look lustfully at a woman, same thing as adultery. Who doesn't do that? That's the point. We all fall in that category. We all do. We all need some serious heart work. Because part of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Being pure in heart is huge for the Christian. It's monumental. And anything that we can do to help Make that happen and put ourselves in a situation where we encourage purity and heart towards Him and it's for nothing else. <coughs> Excuse me, it's worth it. That's what this whole thing is about. It's purely following after Him. And so Jesus is saying, hey listen, when I can't feed your flesh and when I can't give you something, then where am I going to fall? And then He gets radical. And he says, hey, listen, um, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Cannibalism, come on. If you read the Bible at all, in any way, shape, or form, you know it's not encouraged. It never was. And it's not a part of the gospel truth. It's called hyperbole. And it's extreme exaggeration to make a point. Just like he says, if uh, uh, not, your eyeball causes you to sin, you gouge it out. It, no, you don't walk around with one. We do have no eyes. Nobody would have any eyeballs. And you'd have no arms because you'd be cutting those off too. You have nothing. You have nothing. Because whatever you got, we're going to use it some way, shape, or form to be sinful with it. It's just ingrained in us. We're going to go after that. And God is calling us to more. He's calling us to more than that. And so for the Christian, we get presented with situations in life. Storms. Challenges and difficulties. And when we start to grow in the Lord, we're going to say, thank you, Lord, for letting those come up. Because you're revealing where my motivation is at and where my faith is at. It'll start to change from, Lord, fix this, get rid of it. I don't want it anymore. He's going to looking to do a work in us through it. God, what do you want to do in me through it? What's going on? So motivations are huge. We come to church, right? The goal to come to church is talking about Christianity, motivation to be a Christian, to follow Jesus. It's not just to pray a prayer to get out of hell. The motivation is a relationship where he transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Transformation is the goal. Everybody say transformation. Say it one more time. That's our goal. And not just into a better person. It'll be a better person as God sees better. Our better and his better aren't always the same thing. Sometimes we're not using the same language. 
and revealing where our motives are at is like God's not surprised. He's just trying to get us to see what he already knows. And there's great value in that because anyone can see where we're really at. Oh, that's ugly. I don't like that. That's no good. And hopefully, 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 we're humble enough to say, thank you, Lord, for helping me see that that's not good. I could see to where that's going to be a problem. And I really don't want that in my life. And I thank you that you showed it to me. Thank you that you showed it to me. Give me the strength and courage to go after it in the right way. So we're called to do. Motivation is so important. That's why, man, it's just so important if it's possible to keep ourselves from lying a lot, from deceiving a lot, because maybe we can just convince ourselves of anything. And we could just say, oh yeah, my motivations are pure, like, they're good. You know? And then we could ask a couple people and say, yep, they're good. Man, I hope they are. Hope so. Hopefully we're also mature enough to know that we could deceive ourselves at any moment in time. To thinking they're as good as we hope that they are. And for these disciples, as soon as Jesus laid down what's actually going on, man, he lost almost all of them that day and they didn't come back. This thing costs a lot. Christianity costs a lot. It costs everything. It costs us our whole lives. It does. There's just no way around it. And we can probably expect at times it won't be really fun or feel really good. Just the name of the game. The cross does that. Because the first part of being a Christian, if somebody calls themselves a Christian and Christ follower, the very first part of it is deny yourself. How much? That's like the next question. What do we mean by that exactly? How much? My happiness? should be on the table. Should be on the table. Holiness matters. He also cares about our happiness, but he wants to bring it in line in the right way that's most healthy for us to when we can handle the things he might bring later. So deny yourself is like the first part of being a Christian. Wow. And isn't it interesting? That's the first part when you get married. You commit yourself to somebody else. That's the first thing that's got to die. It's a funeral at the altar. It's a funeral. It really is. It is a funeral. I'm saying to Julie, she's saying to me, I'm killing myself for you. Really, it's an agreement to say, you know what? And we were talking about this this morning. It's an agreement up here to say to one another, I don't need your love to complete me, but I need to become love in your life so you can better see the Lord. That's what's going on here. So premarital counseling is so important. People got to know that going into it because there will absolutely be the time in the day, and anybody who's been married for any amount of time can attest to it, there'll be the time in the day where you don't love them, don't want to be around them, they really are, you know, doing more harm than good that you think, and they don't care, and you're not feeling this and feeling that, and 
then it's going to come down to. What's the deal? The deal is, I'm called to become love in their life so they can better see God know Him through me. I'm not sure how much my needs then become a real big issue in talking about. If we're talking about denying ourselves, I think my only need is to become love. That's the only need. At what cost? Be miserable forever for the rest of my life? I think if we're going down that track, we're already thinking wrong. And that's where we got to come to God. God, I don't want to think that way. My mind's already going the wrong way. I'm trying to hedge my bets already. And you've called me to deny myself. God, help turn my heart to the prayer to become. God, I thank you. You've put me in their life so that we can shine through me. And they're going to be able to see and know your love better through the way I'm going to treat them. That's what we're called to be. And you won't hear that anywhere else. Except in a church. Because marriage at the end of the day was by him anyway. It was his idea. That's the only way that thing works and stays together. And it really takes one person to make peace that way. But man, you get two people like that, man, that's a one flesh union. So much better, bigger and better than having sex. One flesh. Come on. It's becoming love for the other person. And then, to understand that a little bit better, and we can go out and bring that to the world around us. It's awesome, because that's what we're called to be. We're called to become love. And we can see that, man, we are on the altar. But what about, but what about, but what about? Man, the sooner we can lay that stuff down, the better. And the joy will follow soon. Sometimes, even if we're like, oh, I just got to love them. I just got to be their foreman. You know, and drudgingly go through it. Uh, they don't appreciate it anyways. I don't even understand. See, I did it and they just... Uh. We're losing. We're losing when we're going there. We're losing. And that stuff ain't cool. Say, Lord, I, I did it. I'm going there. Lord, I want to do it with joy in my heart. Help there to be joy in my heart. You've already made the way, Father. But I'm used to acting a certain way. I thank you that now I can see it Man, this ain't staying long. I thank you for it. We're going to have opportunities to do better next time, for sure. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're called to be. Become love. That's the only way. Jesus really specified how the world would know that we're Christians. It's by how we love other people. Just a total self-sacrifice. Wasn't that going to enable people to just walk all over us and not respect us? Yeah, it sure might. It sure might. Does that mean, you know, that there's never boundaries at all in any way, shape, or form? 
a spouse should hang out in a house if they're getting physically assaulted and beat down all the time. Yeah, probably should be some boundaries there. I'll stay in that scene. Leave it for a while, you know. But for the most part, usually regular, everyday circumstances, we're really focused on our rights and ourselves and how comfortable or uncomfortable something might be for us. And the first step is deny yourself. I'm not ready for that. They should do it. Go after it. Take a step towards it. And what if their response sucks? Well, gotta go after it. Is it making sense? I'm not saying it's fun to hear. I don't, I don't like really hearing it this. But it's the truth. And we got to be Christians, right, that walk in that thing. And go after love in that way. Because Peter's response was the best. Look at Peter in verse 68. Simon Peter said, answered him, Lord. Because he says, hey, you guys going to go too? You bailing on me? Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. What's the other option to pursue our life in the way that we think is best and just try and ride it out, I guess? I don't know. That option just doesn't seem real good. Doesn't seem real good. It's nice to be able to hold on to the truth and hold on to the Father that says we are valuable and that proclaims a future and destiny over us and that's working through us to enjoy the best life we could ever imagine, life more abundant. That's what he's working towards. Because the enemy just wants to sell the sacrifice. How much is it going to cost? That's all he's about, is selling that thing. And so, for a lot of us, it's just like, yeah, we buy into that. Man, that isn't fair. They should get what's coming to them. He said, man, love your enemies. Overcome evil with good. If we're caught in a tit for tat and memorizing, it's just, what are we doing? It's almost like our whole world, as we've ever known it, changes when we become a Christian. Go figure. That's like, that's what happens. You're there for a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are born again. Born again, right? Heaven is guaranteed, and there's pruning here to do. Thank you, Lord, that you're gracious. Thank you, Lord, that your your ways are loving and humble after us. Sometimes he comes a little swifter with a little bit hitter in the hiney, just a little bit harder. And you ain't seeing this. But man, he's gentle. He knows what he's doing. If he comes harsher, he knows what he's doing. He understands it and gets it, and we can trust him. So if somebody is really serious about understanding where their motivations really lie, then you want to turn here. Psalm 26. Put your finger there. And 
then put your finger in Psalm 139. So Psalm 26 and Psalm 139. Right? We pray these prayers if we're serious about God revealing our true heart's motivation. Some people really just really don't want to know or they're not interested. My heart cries out for them. Hopefully our hearts want to know. God, where I'm at, I think that I'm here. I don't know. Show me. Psalm 26, verse 2. Test me, O Lord. Boom! Look at that prayer. Test me, Lord. Put me in a situation, God, where I'm going to be tempted to scream out. Light the fire under me, Lord. Put it around me. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For your love is ever before me and I walk continually in your truth. Man, that's a fearless prayer looking to go hard after what God has for him. Saying, God, my mind, my heart is on the altar. It's going to hurt, but I know it's good for me, Lord. Please go after Work on me, Lord. I pray that I'm in agreement with what you bring to my mind. Help me not to fight back, Father. It's a good heart right there. It's a real good heart. Psalm 139. I think it's a coincidence that the same guy wrote both of these. Verse 23. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Nobody's probably ever anxious in here, so you probably don't need to pray that one, but... See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me. Test me. Examine me. Right? These are prayers that, man, I hope becomes a regular part of our prayer life with God. Because our motives will be tested and prodded time and time and time again. The question is, is my heart purely for you, Lord, and for your glory? I know within that, God, I can trust you to take care of me. Your grace is sufficient. And your love is perfect. God, search me, know me, examine me, test me, Lord. And maybe some people are right in the middle of it. The searching and the testing and the examining. Then it's like, Father, I'm right in the middle of this thing. I pray that you would work off and cut out the things that would hinder me getting closer to you and understanding you better. Because he's doing it. That's what he's doing. He loves us. He's putting us in a good position. Because honestly, at the end of the day, I want Jaren and I want Judson to not share their toys because they can get a donut. I want them to share their toys because they believe in and they see the value of how much it is worth to share and bless another person. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's the ultimate parenting. 
Not only do you have to disciple at every cor- or discipline at every corner and put them in line. Because then what are you going to do when you're not there? Put them in line. Then they're off wild. That kind of stinks. Ultimate parenting. And teach them the way with a goal in mind of, Lord, I just want them to see the value and believe in what we're doing and that this is true and that this is right. Because once they grab it, they'll never veer from it. Take some kids longer than others. But we raise them up in truth. And some kids might go a particular direction and just take off and do whatever on their own choice. I don't understand. I raised them in church. I taught them the Bible. They were there. They were this. What did I do? Man, there's a good chance you didn't do anything wrong. There's a good chance they're working out their faith and they just need to be born again. Because we're not wrapped up in how well we parented at the end of the day. And hopefully I'm not going to judge my Christianity or Julie and I are going to judge our marriage based on how our kids end up. Because now that's an idol and Lord in our life. Oh, but what if we did this? And what if we did that? And we could have done that. Maybe there's a situation, you know, where that stuff happens. Fine, then you give it over to them. But if a family is able to say, hey, listen, we brought them up, we raised them in the right way. We gave them over to the Lord. Now we intercede and we pray on faith in their behalf. Father, they're yours. We, you entrusted them to our care for a while. It was never ours to begin with. Thank you that we had them in our lives. Well, they're with you now. They're not making smart choices, God. I know you're pursuing after them. I pray that they see it. Help them to see it. The enemy wants to blind. Help them to see we don't have to walk around and be a mess. It's not on us. And maybe sometimes a good situation is good like that because it will reveal, again, our motivation. Why are we parenting them a particular way in the first place? So we could, you know, feel good when they're doing well and feel bad when they're doing bad? Like, ah. you got to stand. So there's a lot of things in that passage that Jesus was talking about. But the main issue being motivation. Motivation. And um, thankfully our Father understands that and He is at work within us making sure that we can see what He sees that our motivation hopefully is in the right place. Because man, that matters so much. Matters so much. So, on the bulletin, why is awareness of one's motivations important? Here's why. It eliminates the possibility of deceit. That's why being aware of motivations is important. We're less easily deceived into thinking we're someplace when we're really not. What kinds of times in life make it easier to see our motivation? 
Well, during blessings, then during storms. Storms in particular really help us to see what's going on, where we're at. What was Peter's motivation in following Christ? His motivation was that he knew he was the truth. And once you know it, like, you can't get away from it. It's like, where am I going to go? There's, just, there's nothing else. I don't want to play around anymore. And then what psalms can we pray for? serious about asking God to reveal to us our true motivations. Psalm 26, 2 through uh, 3 is good. Psalm 139 is good. But that's not something you just want to reduce down to a formula. That's something that we pray when our hearts are really there. God, I want to be pure. I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to be purely after you. And then we pray those prayers. So, motivation. Motivation and ulterior motives. Hopefully we can be guilty of no ulterior motives when it comes to following Jesus. No ulterior motives. What can I get out of this? Ah, man. Forget it. The only thing is, we just got to become love. Like, he's growing us into that. That's what it's called to be. It's actually pretty exciting. And pretty good. Because the truth of the matter is, yeah, yeah, it's going to cost you a lot, enemy. Good job, devil. You know what it leads to? It leads to freedom. Because when I'm free from you, and you're free from somebody else, Man, you are free. When I'm free of having to remember all of my rights and justify all of them and give myself a reason to stay a particular way, I'm living in freedom now. Because now I've already won. I'm loving you regardless. I'm not looking for a way to get out. I'm looking for a way to stay in it because, man, I see the value. We don't even see it. And it's my calling to pour it on you. Totally different. Totally different. So let's stand and we'll close in prayer together. Father, I thank you that in your Psalms it also says that your ways are loving, gentle, and humble towards those that seek your face and seek your covenant. And Father, we want to be a people, Lord, that have no other motivations, God, but to know you and seek after all that you have for us. And we have no other motivation, Lord, for serving you other than being faithful in what you've called us to do. And God, for those of us that maybe have not done so great at that, And have found a lot of justifications and reasons for not doing so. I pray, Father, that we would be humble enough to confess that to you. And I thank you that you're gracious and compassionate. And you remove that sin, Lord. Because it's already paid for on the cross. And you're going to walk with us through it. Father, I pray, Lord, that when things like selfishness, 
self-centeredness and offenses. God, these things try and creep in. I pray, Father, that your spirit would keep us acutely aware of what's going on and how we respond, Lord, and when we respond, Father. I thank you that you're doing a good work in all of us that are here, Lord, making sure that our motivation, Lord, is to serve you and be used by you in whatever way that you see fit. And Father, when we're making excuses, I pray that we'd be humble enough to admit that, Lord. I pray when somebody else brings truth into our life and into our hearts, that we'd be able to receive it. We pray that defensiveness and uh, would take a back seat. And Father, I thank you that you're working out the things in us, Lord, that would not bring you glory. Father, we love you, Lord. We pray that you continue to teach us more about our own life and more about our own hearts, Father. And I pray that we would also bring that sort of grace to those around us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.